But Alan is in Denmark at the Leading Edge Symposium, uh, DTU in Roskilde there with a lot of really smart people talking about leading edge erosion issues. What are the newest um, uh, protections out there? What kind of projects are going on in the world? Uh, from our side of view, how does aerodynamics, uh, leading edge roughness affect lightning? A lot of really cool things going on there. Uh, of course, DTU is always doing great work, uh, but that's where Alan is today. So this week, I'm going to try to be my best, Alan. I'm Joel Saxon, the Chief Commercial Officer of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with international renewables expert Rosemary Barnes, plus wind energy economics and data guru Phil Totaro from Intelstore. This is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. So speaking about offshore wind in the United States and kind of how the IRA bill is interacting and if it's kicking off manufacturing facilities or what's actually happening on the ground, today there was an announcement by U.S. Forged Rings, Inc. to be the USA's only integrated one-stop shop manufacturer for offshore wind towers and steel forging. So what they released today in an article was, or in a press release, was the fact that they're going to have two factories up and running on the East Coast, one by 2026, one by 2027. And they're going to work together to build these large-scale steel infrastructure that we need for offshore wind in the U.S. So one of the, one of the factories uh, is going to output towers. They're saying uh, 100 towers per year uh, with like a 35-foot diameter on them. And the other factory that's going to be complete in 2027 is for forging and ring rolling. And they're going to, they can do up to 40 feet in diameter. So what this will do is be able to help uh, the U.S. market create its own transition pieces, its own no bearing races, its own caps for the the towers and whatnot. But Phil, what are the what are the the larger reaching implications of this press release? It's extremely good for the offshore wind market, where you know a company is looking to obviously take advantage of the forty five x manufacturing tax credits. What's interesting about this, though, is that in addition to this serving the offshore wind market. You know, assuming that this factory exists, we don't actually have a lot of uh, particularly forging um, capabilities in the United States for anything above, let's say, like a three or four megawatt onshore turbine. Uh, we usually have to import a lot of that stuff from Europe. Um, even Asia doesn't have the, a full uh, capability to do, you know, enormous uh, you know, six, seven, eight megawatt onshore turbines. Um, a lot of that they're they're actually getting from Europe as well. So surprisingly, to to most. So the fact that this these factories will exist, and I mean the tower factory with you know it, it's going to start off at a hundred units a year, uh, and they said that it's going to potentially expand to two hundred units a year. Um, We'll see. I mean, maybe some of those units will actually be dedicated to, um, you know, to some onshore wind turbines as well. Um, if if we can get the the offshore market really going, then they'll be fully utilized in in building offshore uh, towers and transition pieces. But um, there is that possibility that that we can leverage them for for an expansion in the onshore market too. Yeah, some interesting stuff here in their uh, press release. They also are talking about being able to use some of the 
capabilities that they'll have for offshore floating turbines. Because if you have a spar design or or uh, other kind of designs, they need the large tubular pieces, right? So this this could enable the floating offshore wind in the U.S. Of course, we're looking at that on the West Coast with the deeper water out there. And there is some leases kind of floating around out there on the East Coast. We're further out past what we've been talking about um, lately into deeper water. Uh, also, with that forging and ring rolling factory on the other side, uh, you're looking at yaw rings, pitch bearings, main shaft bearings, and other large components. So um, the another thought I have here, Phil, and, or, or Rosemary for that matter as well, do you think that the, the capabilities of this factory could be used for other things than offshore wind, or will it be specifically just offshore wind? Could it be used for other large industrial facilities? Like, I don't know enough about it to say what else this could be used for, and frankly, why... If we have like oil and gas fabrication facilities, why they aren't doing something for offshore wind and we're just like converting something that already exists for oil and gas, maybe they don't need anything that big. I don't, but we'll, we'll make use of these factories. I'm telling you, like whether it's offshore wind, onshore wind, whatever, we'll make use of these factories. I think the difference there in oil and gas is when you have an oil and gas jacket or um other infrastructure it's so specialized that it's a one-off right they're not building a factory to make these things they're either ordering that one piece or that two pieces or whatever it is from somewhere that can already complete it or they're piecing them together i've seen a lot of jacket foundations that are not rolled steel they're pieces that are all welded together right so they build a facility and and do that custom fab not the case when you're going to scale. I think that the unique thing about this facility is the size, like the the large diameters that they can do, which means they can do wind turbine towers. And I mean, I'm not familiar with absolutely every single thing that's made out of steel, but I don't think that anything else needs those really large diameters. So, you know, obviously if you've got a factory that's big enough to make really big stuff, it, it could make smaller stuff if it wanted to. But um, yeah, that isn't such a big challenge and there'd be other competitors that are already filling that need. So I'm guessing it's going to be fairly specialized. Yeah. The only the only thing I would think of might be pressure vessels um, for any various number of applications. The only thing is that's also sort of a specialized fabrication capability. So I'm not quite sure if they'd actually be able to, you know, again, I, I think these factories are, are intended to be Offshore wind, there is obviously a possibility, as I mentioned, of being able to leverage it for larger onshore wind machines as well, um, either for domestic consumption or, frankly, even an export market. Because when you contemplate, um, I mean, we could be fabricating parts here in the U.S. for export to China, for instance. Um, you know, that, that is that is a possibility. Or even actually Australia, because... There's a lot of projects in Australia that are proposing like six and seven and eight megawatt turbines. So unless they're going to make it a point to to build their own um, localized fabrication facilities, um, you know, who knows? We could be uh, we could be making some parts for them. Yeah, I think I know that there's plenty of people that have in mind that that is a really good entry point into um, wind turbine manufacturing, it's one of the easier things. And, uh, you know, Australia already makes some towers, um, some parts of towers at least. So it's, you know, not such a stretch that we would move up to that. We do have a steel industry. It's not what it used to be, but 
you know, we've got all the iron ore. There's a lot of work now um, to move towards processing that into steel in Australia. And then, yeah, I mean, it's already, uh, I mean, I'm not the only one that's been saying for like a decade or more how crazy it is that we take our iron ore, send that to China, they turn it into steel and then, you know, what whatever else um, they make from the steel and then send that back to us. It's, um, you, you know, it's not good for Australia keeping the real value from our minerals in Australia. You know, the, the digging up of the mineral is, you know, like the least valuable part of that whole process, values added all the way along through the, the manufacturing chain. And, um, yeah, aside from it, being economically stupid it's also environmentally stupid because you know obviously if you send the unrefined steel over if you've got like 50 percent um concentrated iron ore and when that comes back you know you got double the volume that you've got to send over there compared to what comes back so you can save a lot in in shipping and yeah so we are <laughs> we should have been doing it from the start but i think i mean the whole world was really into globalization and just uh, low costs at, at at any any non-financial cost we were prepared to you know give up nearly anything if the the cost of steel or whatever whatever other material was lower and the whole world's moving away from that now and slower than i would have liked but australia has all the pieces in place to you know, like a wind turbine tower should be the very easiest thing that we should definitely be manufacturing in Australia. And um, yeah, I am hopeful that we will within a few years. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So news out of Denmark today, guys. Orsted is suspending its dividend and cutting some jobs as it changes how it addresses offshore markets. So the wind developer says it needs to create a leaner and more efficient company. This is the words from Mads Nipper today. We've prioritized projects within our portfolio and are implementing significant changes in our business, including revising our operational model to reduce risks. We now present a robust business plan with an uncompromising focus on value creation. Plan to install more than double our current installed capacity of renewable energy by 2030. The thing I like here that he said, and I haven't dug completely into it yet, is that we are presenting a robust business plan. This is something that we haven't heard of some other players in the wind industry, uh, i.e. Siemens, Gamesa, and whatever that they're doing. What is their plan? Orsted has one now. Uh, Phil, what does this mean for uh, Orsted going forward? Well, as they indicated, they're kind of getting rid of some of the the fluff, let's call it, um, which is going to include some of the Power to X projects that they had uh, on the menu, you know, uh, some of the hydrogen production, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and focusing on core business, focusing also on core markets um, and on, you know, kind of doubling down in their um their view on you know offshore wind uh again core european markets um but also taiwan uh and they're obviously going to continue what they've been trying to do in the us um you know south fork is still you know on 
uh, on track for coming online this year. Um, and we'll see what happens with some of the other projects that they're still uh, pursuing and, and involved with. They may end up still divesting some of the uh, the projects here in the U.S. Um, <laughs> Eversource also wants out, so you know if both project developers are, are looking to get out, then that's potentially an opportunity for someone else to to get in. Um, but you know, I, I think again, as we've talked about, it is a good thing that they present a uh, a business plan that provides investors and shareholders more confidence because. That's that's kind of the key as far as what was lacking, you know, it, and it's we, we do liken it to other companies like Siemens Gamesa. I mean, Orsted just kind of came out a few months ago and said, well, we, we kind of have a problem, uh, but they didn't really say, well, we kind of have a solution too, and here's what it is. Um, it's just, you know, all they did was kind of diagnose the fact that they, they have issues and now they've at least put pen to paper and said, all right, we, the, here's how we're going to dig ourselves out of the hole. Um, it's unfortunate that not only the, the 800 jobs that they're going to be cutting, but their longtime chairman also stepped down, um, as a result. And, you know, as we've also talked about, one would presume that Mads Nipper's job also isn't safe, but they're at least leaving him in his current position until this can this kind of transition can can occur, and then they'll find someone else to kind of champion the the new era of Orsted. Yeah, interesting here. There, the market, some of their plan. Okay, Phil, you mentioned it. They're kind of cut eight hundred jobs. They have about nine thousand people globally. So that means that mm, just under 10% of their staff is looking looking for pink slips. So that's, that's not the best way to be, but it's reality. Uh, and the markets that they're going to withdraw from are Norway, Spain, and Portugal. Now, Norway, Spain, and Portugal, for the mo- a lot of that is floating, um, to my knowledge. So they're not as advanced as the, the projects that they operate right now in the North Sea. Uh, but it is interesting as well the um, with the chairman stepping down. So Thomas Tuna Anderson has been there for ten years. Um, he's exiting that role, and also we had you know this past fall Daniel Lerup, the chief operating officer, um, or the 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 finance chief, and then Richard Hunter, the chief operating officer, left as well. So there has been we have talked about how long will Mads Nipper keep his job, uh, but there has been a lot of changes from the board of directors all the way down. Um, and I mean, we're all we're all hopeful that Orsted comes out of this thing uh, a, a shinier new product uh, because them being healthy is good for the offshore wind energy uh, market in a, as a whole. Uh, Rosemary, any thoughts on this this Orsted um, kind of move and them pulling back a little bit? What it means for their future? Yeah, well, I think that they had the right idea with their strategy to you know get in early with the u.s market i mean a lot of people had that idea and i think it's why we saw such a like a feeding frenzy for some of those early auctions everybody wanted in and they got in but um i don't think people anticipated how um i don't know wishy-washy i guess is that the right term the environment in the u.s was yes (laughs) yes it is yeah that's perfect Yeah, I think it's a huge cultural difference between Denmark and the the US. And I've actually lived in both countries, the uh, US just for one year back in oh, that uh, twenty years ago. So it's been a while. Um, but Denmark is characterized by just that they've got immense 
trust in you know other people and in governments i think that they're like the most trusting country in the world or at least one of them um which i think that they might as a you know danish company culturally um they might have been surprised that when you enter into agreements with um governments that you, you know things don't there isn't a lot of trust going back the other way you know um, so I think that they might have been surprised by that relationship and so that the cultural clash might have been more than what they're expecting. But I do still think that it's the right move, but just that it was too soon. The US isn't actually ready for all of these European companies to, to come in and, um, you know, ramp up offshore wind really fast in the US. I, I mean, we all wish that it was true and, um, you know, I wouldn't have predicted these problems a couple of years ago, but here we are. But that said, I, I do like the the company. I mean, it's just such a great story of, uh, you know, a company that went from being an oil and gas ca- company that was literally in their name and now they're a renewable energy company. I don't know if there's any others in the world that have actually managed to do that. Um, so, you know, like I am rooting for them, for the the company. I actually, I have a note. Um, I, I set a reminder in my calendar to um, buy some Austed stocks once this kind of settled down because it fell so far and I don't really believe that there's anything wrong, anything much has changed with the the fundamentals of the company. Um, I, I still haven't done that yet. And so uh, just mostly out of uh, forgetfulness, but it's nice to see that they fell a little bit more because now, now I can get an extra couple of percent um, <laughs> since they're, they're lower. Um, don't take that as stock advice. I mean, if you looked at the you, you know returns that I make in my portfolio, then um, you would certainly not come to me for stock advice. Um, but yeah, the size of the layoffs was interesting. What is it like nearly 10% of their workforce? And um, I will say Denmark is brutal, absolutely brutal for stuff like that. Um, people might have the wrong idea that, you know, Denmark at Scandinavia, everybody's warm and fuzzy. And you might have heard like Swedish people tell you how it's impossible to fire anyone. Um, as culturally similar as Denmark is to Sweden, it is just absolutely not like that in the workforce. They, um, they call their system flex security, I think, like flexible security. The flexibility is just the ability to ruthlessly just <laughs> slash their workforce by like 10% for, you know, they don't have to give that that much of a reason or be that generous even in their payout to the staff that they let go of. Um, but the security is that for Danish people, you know, it's quite, um, it, it's quite secure in the amount of unemployment um, money that you'll get for quite a long time while you're looking for work as long as you, um, were, I can't remember the exact set up. I think you have to be a member of a union or something similar to it, some kind of insurance to get that. But I will say as a foreigner, um, it's <laughs> there's no no security for you there as a foreigner. So <laughs> so all the foreigners that uh the international workers that got laid off, that's um yeah, that is just as brutal as it sounds. Um so yeah. Uh, it you know it's good for the company though that they can make a big change when they need to better that than that they you know limp along for the next decade trying to scrimp and scrape enough to scrape enough to recover you know this way hopefully they can get it all done in one go and then move forward with the stuff that's going to be profitable in the near term and um, have the strength there to get back into the U.S. when when the country is ready for it. Rosemary, I don't want to make you feel bad about your delay in the stock price, but back in the fall, not too long ago, a couple, two, three months ago, when they initially, hey, we announced these write-downs and Orsted and stuff, their stock dropped to about $11.80 US, and it's already back up to 18 
There we go. So this is why you shouldn't you shouldn't trust me for investment advice. I've missed the boat. I'm also I'm very um lazy as well with my investing. I I do it when it occurs to me, and so um yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> not someone that's that's looking up stock prices every day and making a lot of trades. I, I buy something and then I hold it for you know as long as I can. <laughs> Uh, so, guys, sticking in the uh, financial uh, realm of things here, we're going to talk about Vestas for a little bit. So Vestas uh, returned to profitability. However, not going to give a dividend either. And for good reason, their dividend would have been minuscule uh, based on what their profitability was. But they are back in black and their discipline is paying off is what they're uh, stating in their report for the year. So I'll give you some numbers here. Uh, they made a full year operating profit before special items of 231 million euros compared to a loss of 1.2 billion euros the year before. So that's a big turnaround. Uh, they adjusted the operating profit in fourth quarter was 191 million euros versus a loss of 514 million euros the year before. So they're beating analysts. They're doing a bit better. Uh, the guidance that they've given, Vesta's forecast of revenue this year of 16 to 18 billion euros and the analysts are looking at 17. So they're right in that same window with what the they believe will be. Uh, so Henrik Anderson, the CEO, has stated continued geopolitical volatility as well as slow permitting and insufficient grid build-out across markets are expected to cause uncertainty in 2024. So Vestas is, is uh, getting back to better health. This is something that we've talked about for the last few years. It was going to take a little while to happen, but it's great. However, this is the angle I would like to talk at this one with you guys about. Do you believe that some of the downfall of what Siemens has going on and them stopping selling their certain platforms right now in the market has led to an increase in Vesta's uh, order book? Modestly, I'll say, Joel. Um, a lot of this, getting the Vesta's getting back to profitability has more to do with a recovery in turbine prices because, as you may recall, um, in prior years, you know, even Vestas came out and said that the average price they were seeing um, for turbines was about um, seven hundred thousand dollars U.S. per megawatt, um, and that's taking into account, you know, markets where you're selling turbines for a million a megawatt, but also markets where you're selling for like six hundred thousand a megawatt. Um, and so now, the average price, according to our own numbers at Intel Store, we're seeing. Um, much higher uh, turbine sale prices for projects that were closed last year, including you know a lot of the 18 gigawatts order book that they announced last year. Um, but they they're quoting much higher now. They're they're around 900,000 a megawatt, uh, 950,000 a megawatt, if not a little higher now, um, in terms of the the price quotes that they're offering at this point for uh you know projects which presumably would be delivered to um you know in the next two to to three years so you know yes the downfall of siemens gamesa has allowed vestas to go gain some market share in markets where, you know, they would have been competing with the five and the six megawatt platform. Um, the only reason I guess I'm hesitating on it is because I, I kind of feel like, you know, Vestas would have already been kind of leading that those markets anyway, 
Um, because while everybody still thinks that Siemens Gamesa makes a solid product, uh, even prior to the quality issues, um, it just wasn't always the favored turbine. Um, and I don't know if that comes down to perception of performance, perception of bankability, um, the service offerings that, uh, or the quality of the service offering that's received by a, an asset owner and operator. So, yeah, there's, um, you know, there, again, good, good news for Vestas in terms of getting, uh, back to profitability. It seems like most of the cost increase that they've been able to incur uh or that they've had to incur as a result of commodities and raw material costs going up has been passed on to customers uh i.e project developers um so you know that's good but again even even with them not issuing a dividend i think it's it's fine from the standpoint of um you know the the shareholders in the company who will anticipate getting back to a higher dividend once that can can presumably occur later on this year. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So, so guys, Siemens, Gamesa staff, and Arazuri Navarra will go on strike. Uh, we've been talking about them possibly going on strike in Spain there for a while. Uh, and it sounds like uh, one of the factories has actually pulled the trigger and made it happen. Um, so what they're saying is Arazuri is the only center in Navarre that is not adhered to the corporate office agreement with Siemens Gamesa, which is a clear discrimination. Uh, it, it looks like it's going to affect 62 workers uh, at the plant, um, that they're going to basically shut it down. So what what are the ramifications for this in a plant like that, Rosemary? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interruption. Well, this is the sort of thing that, you know, they'll, they'll do this occasionally, you know, Vestas has kind of suffered from, uh, you know, temporary factory shutdowns in Spain, um, GE even had protests, you know, going back a few years, LM, uh, factories in Spain as well in the past. But uh, it's usually like a very modest and temporary interruption. It's not anything that's going to like dramatically impact production per se. Um, but it's it's one of those things that it's this is like the fourth different location since, you know, Siemens has announced that they've had these product quality issues. Um, this is like the fourth location that said that they're going to go on strike. Um, uh, and so it's just, <laughs> uh, culturally, I think they're, they're just facing a, a challenge there to provide reassurance, not only to investors and shareholders, but, uh, to their own staff to say, look, we've got a plan for getting ourselves out of this, but we all need to pull together, uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, obviously these 62 people feel like they're not uh, being treated equitably. And that, so that plan, like we're saying, Siemens, like Orsted came out with, hey, here's our plan. Siemens Gamesa has a plan. They're calling it the Mistral plan uh, to address some of these issues within the, the 
<laughs> inside there. Uh, so they're they're they've actually came out now. It's 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 quarterly earnings time, right? We've been talking a little stock market, a little finances here. So Siemens Energy, different of course than Siemens Gamesa, but Siemens Gamesa right now uh, dragging Siemens Energy down on their quarterly reports a bit. Uh, it, it looks like if you if you were to take the the quick numbers from Siemens Energy, um, their revenues to two billion euros uh, for this past fiscal year, uh, but that comes with a, a loss of. Uh, or a reported uh, EBITDA, which is basically your loss after everything else you pull out of it, of a negative 900 million. So pretty, pretty tough times to be in the Siemens Gamesa finance department. Uh, but what is, how does that overall feel uh, affect um, with Siemens that if when you take into consideration Siemens Energy as the parent and Siemens Gamesa looking like this, are they going to have to make some, some big moves to save this thing financially, Phil? I mean, there's still struggling with a couple of different things at the moment. It sounds like they obviously kind of have their head around what the quality issues are. They haven't quite effectively communicated that to investors and shareholders because they're still clamoring for, well, what exactly is the full extent of this? And I mean, management came out even today when they released their numbers um, and, and said, you know, we, we aren't expecting anything worse than what we've already told you, um, uh, to, to paraphrase, um, which I guess is good from one perspective, but it's also unsettling because, you know, people want to either have confidence that you've, you know, tied this off and, and we can move on or, and get back to selling, uh, or, uh, you know, it's it's something where, oh, well, we were, you know, grossly um, uh, or disproportionately over predicting what we were going to spend, you know, the five billion loss that, that we were going to have. It's actually not going to be five billion. It's only going to be three or whatever, you know, and, and it's like, oh, my God, that's great to an extra two billion that that we don't have to waste on on losses. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that investors and shareholders want to see and hear. And they're still not seeing and hearing that um, from, from Siemens Gamesa management. And, and that's where I think we still have a, a problem here. They keep trying to provide assurances about, um, the, the quality issues are, are, you know, well understood and, and are being dealt with. But again, even from that perspective, I think since the start of this whole thing, Siemens Gamesa has just had kind of a a bit of a PR issue with this whole thing. It's like, you know, in, in corporate management, like if you have an, everybody's going to go through either a product quality issue or some kind of, you know, business downturn, whatever, but it's, it's usually, okay, we can see this coming. We have a plan for dealing with it. We, we know, you know, what needs to happen. And, and my point is that before you go out and say anything in public, You've dealt with everything that you can possibly deal with internally. Um, you know, you can't obviously like withhold information, you know, business critical information from shareholders, but you also want to be able to have your arms around what's happening. And I think in their their desire for transparency and not wanting to be accused of of hiding anything, they went forward with uh, publicly with a lot of 
you know, hey, we've got an issue here, but there was no roadmap for, okay, how do you deal with that issue? And then what's the business strategy moving forward? Uh, they've just kind of come out and, you know, been very transparent with the fact that they have an issue. And we're sitting here nine months later, you know, going on 10 or 11, and it's, you know, we're still scratching our heads trying to understand, okay, what exactly... Uh, you know, when can you start selling again? When are you going to start making money again? When, you know, like there's, it's, you know, the, the, the things that they've said in the past are, are just unfortunately not convincing. And they're talking about, oh, we're going to be back in profitability by 2026. Well, not if you're not selling in 2024. Uh, so you best get on top of it if you're not already. Yeah, that's the interesting one, right? Chief Executive, Chief, Chief Executive Officer Christian Brush come out, he says, uh, we're going to stick to this prediction that we're going to break even in 2026 with some of these fixes that we need to do, the big spend probably being in 2025, uh, which is uh, such a general vague statement that it that can't give anybody a warm fuzzy. But how, however, uh, the early shares trading that rose 2.8%, um, and that adds to 20% gains so far this year after they slumped off about 30% in value at the end of last year. So. For the, I don't know, the general investor, it's, they're kind of still feeling like it's going to be okay, uh, is what it looks like. But um, I don't know. If from 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 some looking at it as we do from the inside of the industry, it it's still still uh, on thin ice. Okay, so shifting gears now. We've been talking about finance for a little bit. We're going to talk back to O and M and what's actually going on in the field. So up in Norway, a rotor fell off of a Nordex N149 turbine. So this was in, I'm going to say this wrong, of course, Øyfjellet uh, Wind Park in Norway. Uh, they had an issue with one of the turbines back from this summer, back in June. Uh, and since then, they, they kind of cordoned off the area. They made sure nobody would go in there. They did everything kind of safe there. Uh, but as a part of the repair process, they removed the gearbox, so they took some some uh, major components out of the inside of the nacelle there, and they said along with the the company's statement says this, along with other special circumstances surrounding the damage and repair work, has led to an unusual risk that the rotor falling could or the rotor falling failing could fall off the turbine. And on January twenty seventh, the rotor became loose and fell off the turbine. So the interesting thing here for me is that they kind of knew it could be an issue. They knew it could come off. Um, they did some risk analysis and stuff on it, but they didn't actually do anything about it. Um, to remove a major component, usually you have to have a or the the, the gearbox uh, or the gearbox. You have to have a crane there. You also have to have uh, you know or a, or a smaller crane system mobilized to site to even get this thing down. So there had to be something really weird going on with this turbine that they left it in kind of a precarious position without actually just saying, hey, the crane's here, let's take the rotor off as well. What do you think? You ever heard anything else about this, Phil? It's a little bit of a strange one because it sounds like they they needed to reinstall some um, tooling or other components that was going to hold everything together, you know, and, and mitigate some of that risk. Um, but they just didn't have some of that tooling available is what they're saying. So uh, that's unfortunate because, I mean, 
from that perspective, it's going to be hard for for them to make any kind of a claim, you know, like an insurance claim or whatever, because this sounds like it was entirely the, you know, either on the OEM or EPC contractor to to not follow a proper procedure. But um, it's it's also a bit distressing because this product platform has had some teething issues around the world like the they also had a rotor issue down in australia the same model um at the mort lake south um wind farm recently um there's also been a recent report of an issue in for a wind farm in chile with the same uh same model make and model of turbine um and so you know it's maybe this is one of those scenarios where it might be like a Nordex procedure that needs to be reevaluated. Um, but again, I mean, you never, you never want to see a, a situation like this, but uh, clearly something needs to be done if it's, you know, not just an, an isolated incident. Yeah. The interesting, one of the interesting things here is Nordex says like they came out right away. This is an isolated incident. There's no other risk to any other turbines on that wind farm or in the wider fleet. No worries. And then the asset owner's like, yeah, we're going to do an RCA and figure this out. So there could be some more news that comes out of this uh, rotor falling off of the turbine up in Norway. And it's it's also another reason why you need to have asset owners, uh, you know, talking to each other and, and providing information exchange, which is obviously something that we're trying to do with the, the data licensing that, that we're doing is trying to, you know, shine a light on the fact that there are other asset owners that own the same product that you do. And potentially, you know, they're, they could also be experiencing issues or um, potentially operating their asset with the same make and model of product in, in a better way. And so that's the sort of thing that needs to happen within the industry is asset owners have to and operators have to get a little more comfortable kind of talking to each other and, and potentially sharing best practices and information uh, so that things like this don't reoccur. Because again, I mean, Nordex may come out and say, trying to reassure everybody, oh, it's an isolated incident, but it hasn't, I mean, when you do the root cause, I'm sure it's going to be, you know, something that was specifically different than the issue that they had in, in Australia, more like South or, or in Chile, as you mentioned, but it, it's still, you know, it, it, seeing kind of repeated issues on the same make and model of product is never really a good thing. Uh, so again, I think from a holistic standpoint, it might need to be a, a internal investigation into procedures that that might need to occur here. Yeah, I mean, Phil, we talk about this quite often. The OEMs don't want to share that much data, which is you know trade secrets and whatnot. But the operators can. Some of them are covered under some contractual agreements to basically mums the word on everything with NDAs and those kind of nasty little pieces of paper that can slow industries down. But there is a few, uh, you know. Working groups. I know there's a a Scandinavian working group that gets together and they talk about you know with all the owners and they talk about things. There is a Blades one. I think that's headed up by some people from Bladina and uh, Birgit Junker that was with RWE. They talk about some blade issues. They get together as like a little conference. Uh, one of the ones I was at a few years ago. The last time they had it in person was the Sandia Blade Conference, and there was quite a bit of a uh, good conversation there about best practices and what's going on, different kind of things. Not at the granular level, right? Not at the, hey, we have this platform with this blade and this and this and this. It was more like, hey, guys, let's get together. What are some general things? 
Um, at Sandia is going to happen again this year. We saw that in, they announced that uh, down in Albuquerque. So if you're into if you're into blades and you want to know what's going on in the the U.S. wind industry from an academic standpoint, but with a lot of great operators there uh, and engineers, that's a good conference to go to. I think last year, last time they had it in person, there was probably 250 to 300 people there, um, and it was a couple different tracks, all about uh, technical issues. So that one was good. Um, we could see some of these things raised at that conference, but yes, uh, fully agree with you, Phil. It would be nice if we had a, I don't know what we would call it. The, the, the wind book, the Facebook of, of wind and just everybody could be on there and share all the issues with certain things and maybe a nice forum there. I don't know. And maybe it's an Intel store spinoff. Maybe we're, we're working on it. So that's going to be it for the uptime wind energy podcast this week. If you're a frequent listener to the podcast, please take a moment and give us a five star rating on your podcast platform. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Uptime Tech News. And this was a big one. Don't forget this. If you're going to be at Bla- uh, OMS, uh, ACP OMS in San Diego, Intel Store is putting on a perfect little event on Thursday night. So go to their website or go to their LinkedIn. Find the link for that. Sign up. It's going to be free to attend. A lot of good information there. So uh, make sure you hit up that. 